Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky, and disturbing children's books, films, and TV. I'm Red Wednesday, and with my co host Adam Wybray, today I'll be talking about The Haunting of Eliza Bell Cray by Chris Wooding. There will be a full transcript of this episode available, so check the episode description if you want to see that. Enjoy! Hello. Um, <laughs> this feels quite early to be doing a recording, um, but I'm sure we'll manage. Well, don't don't worry, because I didn't get much sleep last night, so I, I'm ready. <laughs> Great. Um, so this, um, the haunting of Eliza Bell Cray, was uh, was my suggestion because it's a book that I read when I was a kid, and that has stuck in my memory as. One of the scariest books I've ever read. I'm impressed you read it as a kid. There is no way I would have got through this as a kid. Like, you know, if I tried reading this before, even 14 would have been a push. Like, yeah, if I tried reading this before 16 or something, I wouldn't have got through it, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, um, it came out in 2001, so I think I must have been 12 or 13 when I was reading it. And... It's a scary, scary It's book. pretty nasty. Um, <laughs> um, it goes there. <laughs> it, yeah, it does. Um, so I didn't remember very much about it from, from having read it back then. So what did you remember? I remembered Stitch Face, I, who is the serial killer character. <laughs> I didn't remember that he's called Stitch Face. Um, I just remembered that there was a, ho- a horrifying serial killer. And I remembered specifically um, uh, part of the rhyme. Oh. Okay, so so there's... Um, <laughs> I'll give a description in a moment, but um, one of the witchkin, which is the monsters in the books, is called Rawhead. And he... Uh, follows behind you at night <laughs> um, and uh, you hear uh, an extra footstep as you walk and if you turn around three times and he appears and kills you and there's a rhyme and it says raw head close behind you treads three looks back and you'll be dead but close your eyes and count to ten and raw head will be gone again and I remembered the second half of that rhyme <laughs> um, and I often thought about it when I was walking at night by myself and presume, um, presumably walking through London I mean that's going to be I, yeah, I mean it's yeah, yeah. very much a book set in London and so I did feel that maybe for you growing up in London it would be quite a different experience reading it for me who's only ever gone really as a tourist to London or when I've stayed with you yeah it definitely had um, definitely locations I recognised and sort of felt yeah sort of a connection with it in that way um so give give some context it's uh set in a kind of 
alternate timeline Victorian London in which 20 years before the start of the story, Britain was badly bombed by the Prussians. So after this bombing, which is called the, the Vernichtung, which means destruction in German, uh, nightmare creatures called witchkin started to appear in the cities, but particularly in London. And they're much worse than other kin. <laughs> uh, yes, they are, yeah. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, they overrun the old quarter of the city by night. Uh, they only come out at night. And uh, one of our main characters, uh, Thaniel, is a witch hunter and he's one of the few people who have any means of dealing with the witchkin. And our title character, Elizabeth, is a girl that he finds in great distress when he's out hunting and she's lost all memory of who she is. There's quite a lot of plot to this book um, and I will try to explain as we go along. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did think as to how nimbly we're going to have to step around spoilers. Um, I think we can't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's always going to be an issue when you start with an amnesia plot line, basically. Uh-huh. Um, which which I think is actually handled quite well in this book. I'm always a bit sniffy about amnesia as a kind of convenient plot device, particularly uh-huh. as someone who's played quite a lot of interactive fiction and oh, is yeah. used a lot in old uh, interactive fiction like Infocom. Uh, as a Uh useful means of withholding information. Um, But I think it allows you to... You're aligned with Eliza Bell's perspective enough that it kind of works, I think. Mm. Like, it doesn't feel just, like, wholly abstracted in the plot device. You know, it it feeds into her character in a way that's quite convincing. So I didn't mind it too much here. Yeah, um, I feel like there's, there's definitely quite a few tropes in this um used in this book but i think they're used pretty well and they it kind of avoids maybe some of the more sort of lurid or sensational aspects in a way yeah um, we'll have like, to get on to I'm thinking that. about the, like the asylum and yeah you know in in a way i think it it's similar to Neil Gaiman's stuff. Like it reminded me of Neverwhere quite a lot. Obviously, mm-hmm. partly oh, yeah. creeping underneath London stuff, and the idea of a kind of secret society of undesirables uh, living, living sort of, you know, in bondage in name only. That mm. it's got a somewhat romanticised portrait of what it is to be homeless in a way that um, Neverwhere also does. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about the uh, the sort of society of the the beggars? Yeah, and, who who yeah, you know, have a lot of camaraderie and are pictured having a lot of good times and feasting and drinking and are supposedly very well, uh. wealthy, <laughs> even though this is Victorian <laughs> Victorian era London. So clearly, this is a, a major kind of divergence from real world <laughs> Victorian London. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, that, yeah. I see what you mean. <laughs> um, it reminded me kind of of um, Discworld, like Terry Pratchett. Yeah, sort of yeah, thing. I, I um, can see that. Where they have like the the Fools Guild and the Thieves Guild and so on, mm. but it's uh, it's done for more dramatic effect in this book. Yeah, it's slightly less satirical perhaps than in the Discworld yeah. books. I mean, talking about the plotting, <laughs> the thing that made me thing most of was a very good D&D campaign. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Like, there were a lot of times where it, it felt like they were doing dice throws, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. And um, it's like, stitch face. And then these hell dogs come at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, do a perception <laughs> check. There, there'd be a lot of perception <laughs> checks in that, in that book. Um, things lurking out of the dark. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> and and generally it's very mission based, right? The plotting, especially once they work, our heroes work out what they need to do. Um, it's very mm. much overcome these obstacles, which get increasingly nasty. Yeah, to get to the the final battle. So, let's yeah. say not not that this is necessarily a problem. I mean, it can make plotting quite dynamic. You know, it, it's certainly mm-hmm. propulsive, and it keeps you turning the pages. Um, and interestingly, there's some almost meta commentary on it. So there's this character, is he called the Devil Boy? Yes. Yes, who, yeah, again, again, in terms of, you know, it's odd because I feel like the book probably does have quite a lot of issues with representation, but it really didn't trouble me in the way that, say, Box Trolls really did last week. Yeah, I feel like it's um, quite humane like i feel despite some of the issues i feel like it's trying to um acknowledge people's humanity and so on yeah i i I think so and i like the fact that even when you get these incidental characters who are murdered off quite quickly Mm. i think wooding is very good at giving telling details or giving us quick but convincing sketch of this character you know all the characters do seem recognizably human basically you know even if they're only there really uh for plot reasons yeah i did want to talk about that actually because okay to try and explain so there's there's sort of two big threats um one of them is the witchkin who we'll talk more about and they're the supernatural horror who um, do all kinds of horrible things, um, which, uh, <laughs> but um, then there's also there's the the serial killer Stitchface, who is is a Jack the Ripper. Oh yeah, he's character. clearly modelled on Jack the Ripper. <laughs> um, so there's these kind of more supernatural horrors, and there's these more these horrors that are more based in the real world. Yeah, and like we're saying, we get to know uh, some of the sort of incidental victims before they are uh, horribly murdered in one way or another. Um, and I think these characters bring the um, the sort of real-world-based horror to life. Like, we get... Like, Stitchface's um, first victim in the book is a woman called Mary Walbury, who um, was sold to a workhouse as a child and then escaped and became a street sex worker and... Um, we sort of just hear about sort of details of her life and it kind of brings together the um the supernatural horror of the of the witchkin and also the real real horrors of poverty disease slavery war corruption all, all these things that are that are in the background of the book yeah i think that Obviously, you feel on side with the victims, but more than that, I don't really feel that you're vicariously enjoying the mythic 
Jack the Ripper. I mean, I'm very on off with Alan Moore, I guess, um, mm-hmm. as I think a lot of people on the left tend to be. That you know, there are lots of things they like about Alan Moore, and then lots of things which make them roll their eyes. I think, um, mm-hmm. and in some ways, I was really impressed with From Hell. Um, I think it's a much richer work than Watchmen, for instance. Um, partly mm. because it's such a sort of, um, I, well, I guess having done Academia, I like all the kind of cod Academia in it. But for those who, of you who don't know From Hell, in graphic novel form, it's quite different really to the film. Um, and it's much more about the Jack the Ripper murders um, as psychogeography, essentially. So, mm-hmm. it, since you, have you read it? I haven't, no. So it's much more about some myths around London and how kind of Jack the Ripper changed the psychological landscape of London, basically. Okay. Um, so it's, it's a very kind of clever work, but there are times in it where it does feel like he's taking a bit too much enjoyment in Jack the Ripper's killings in this slightly mm-hmm. gleeful, seedy way that made me feel very uncomfortable and you know, this is obviously not uncommon in how Jack the Ripper is mm-hmm. portrayed in media or in museums that generally... I know there was a fair bit of controversy a couple of years ago because there was this Jack the Ripper museum set up uh-huh. which seemed to be just revelling in his crimes with little regard to the fact that, you know, he horribly <laughs> murdered several real women. Yes. Um, yeah, I was sort of weighing this up as I was thinking about this book um, of whether it whether we kind of stitch face becomes a kind of anti-hero in a way and I, I think it avoids doing that so to explain there's stitch face and then there's the fraternity so stitch face is a Jack the Ripper like serial killer who murders women and mutilates their bodies um, but there's another set of murders going on uh, which imitate Stitchface's killings and these are eventually revealed to be the work of the fraternity who are a cultist organisation who try to kill Eliza Bell. Right, this is why, <laughs> this is why she has no memory. And they're, they're basically uh, like the Rothschilds group. They're, they're like the kind of possibly real, it's hard to say... Um, conspiratorial elite group that you get in conspiracy theories okay i'm not familiar oh, okay. with that, but... <laughs> i've probably probably read more conspiracy theories on <laughs> um but yeah the the fraternity are like uh a group of the the elite and powerful and also strategically useful people who control the city and their their head is um uh Spoiler warning. <laughs> uh, yes, a spoiler warning for all of this um, is uh, a man called Pike, who is the director of the asylum. And he has this grand plan to bring about the, uh, the Glaumesca, which is the new gods who will destroy the world, but uh, hopefully save this band of cultists. And so the murders that are imitating Stitchface's murders are are forming <laughs> their locations are forming the shape of the 
Chuck Morg. Um, <laughs> Chuck Morg. <laughs> Chuck Morg. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> um, yeah, which is the uh, tentacled cultist symbol uh, that is also tattooed on Elizabeth. So th- that's obviously where we get the Lovecraft stuff in the book. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the Chuck Morg is a... Uh, described as a, a stylized image of a many-tentacled thing seen in three-quarter profile etched in simple blue-black ink. And the copy of the book that I had as a kid had that on the front, and but uh, my current one doesn't. No, I've just got the one with the pentagram on the front, which is, oh, okay. isn't, isn't nearly uh, as one, exciting. No, my one has... Um, it's quite a good cover. It has, um, it has Eliza Bell, a sort of sort of anime type style she looks kind of haunted or possessed as is appropriate oh, well, actually i think because i've heard you know a lot of talk of failed ad- film adaptations of eliza bell cray um and actually i think it'd work much better as an anime yeah mm-hmm. uh, yeah i think the rhythms of it and like the <laughs> character types and stuff just would suit anime far better than a live action film yeah it's not dissimilar so, to something like Bleach um, in some ways. Okay, I'm sorry. I keep, <laughs> I keep not getting your references. Oh, no. um, yeah. Okay, well, Bleach is this sort of mammoth-long series about demon hunters, basically. Okay. Um, so, it, it, you know, I haven't watched all of it. It used to show on the uh, Freeview anime channel. Um, and it seemed to be, like, one of the only animes they had licence for, so they just, like, play it <laughs> through the whole day, basically. But it's similar to Elizabeth Bell Crane that, you know, all, all the demons are really horrible and mm-hmm. horribly grotesque and, and such. Um, but it, it has a similar structure that, you know, it tends to be um, discussing what the plan's going to be and then fighting a demon and then a bit of recovery <laughs> and then a bit more discussion of what they're going to do next and then fighting another demon, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry i've got a bit off track that's <laughs> <laughs> all right um i think i was yeah i was talking, I was talking about stitch face um and the fraternity and the and yeah so like the fraternity are kind of the people who who are on are on top in society and have um the power of money to protect themselves more from the supernatural threat and there's sort of extra horror that the head of the fraternity is the director of the asylum, so him and his agenda gets to decide who is sane and on. Um, and yeah, I don't know if there's like the temptation to see Stitchface as the anti-hero, like in opposition to the fraternity, but actually I think they're shown to just be like two sides of the same thing um yeah I'm, i i i i have similar thoughts i mean i guess in D terms <laughs> right um the the fraternity are effectively lawful evil and stitch face is chaotic evil mm-hmm. so neither is really more evil than the other although i suspect that wooding's allegiances if pushed would be towards chaotic evil Uh uh-huh yeah um and (laughs) 
because Stitch Face uh, does a win. <laughs> he, I mean, he uh, survives, <laughs> and like the very at the very end of the book, um, in the epilogue, the very uh, last line, we see that Stitch Face is off to horribly murder Pike. He's the head of the fraternity, um, so he doesn't get any comeuppance. Is it? Have you? I can't remember if I've ever made you watch Con Air. <laughs> um, no. So <laughs> Con Air being um, a very kind of sweaty, testosterone-drenched action film with Nicolas Cage. John Malkovich plays the main villain in it, uh, who's called Cyrus uh-huh. the Virus, and, and claims <laughs> that he has killed more people than cancer. Yeah, which is quite a claim. Um, So Steve Buscemi in the film uh, plays a serial child murderer and Uh abuser, possibly. And he gets off completely scot-free at the end and is basically portrayed as, you know, all that wacky child murderer. (laughs) It's really odd. Like... The other sort of evil characters in it, you know, yeah, they're definitely evil and they deserve their comeuppance. But for some reason, Buscemi's just used as a comic <laughs> relief. And, like, at the end, like, similarly, I thought of it because it ends with him. The last shot is him um, gambling or playing cards. And uh, it just uh-huh. ends with him saying, I feel lucky or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of enjoyably ghoulish, but obviously very <laughs> troubling at the same time. Um, yeah, I'm not... I don't think it goes quite... I mean, I, I wouldn't quite no. say the book has the tone of, oh, lovable stitch face. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but he does not uh, get any comeuppance. No. But, but hey, I guess in real life, or certainly no. in evil Victorian London... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, um, so let me go back and talk a bit about the the um, the Witchkin themselves a bit more because um, I think they're the most uh, one of the most memorable aspects of the book. Um, Agreed. Um, so just like a a few of the ones that we encounter, so there's the Cradle Jack, which is a kind of spindly fingered child eater whose uh, scratch turns you into itself as the drog or drowned folk whose uh, presence is heralded by like ice cold temperatures and the smell of the sea and the sound of wet flippers on floorboards and so on and they, they want to drag you under the sea with them yeah that, that um, one's really really <laughs> some shadow over in <laughs> From what? Um, oh, oh. Um, <laughs> the, the Lovecraft, um, Lovecraft story, uh, Shadow Over Insmith. Oh. Um, oh no, I do know that. Yeah, know that. it's the one with yeah. the deep ones. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah. Um, there's the White who lives in the shadows and whose touch causes instant necrosis of the body's tissues and shrivels it up. Oh, those descriptions um, are really quite deeply unpleasant, actually, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's the Dildegast, who um, 
who places his stones on the corner of your house and uh, when he places his last stone your house collapses. Oh that one's really great yeah. Like, yeah. Find that bit in the, that was probably my favourite one of my favourite little bits in the book actually that was brilliant. <laughs> I love the book because um, so basically the fraternity's plan starts to work um, they start to they start the process of, of conjuring these old gods and um and there's a the, the darkness descends and permanent sort of shadow over London and so all the witchkin can come out during the day and then there's this there's this great sequence of all the witchkin coming out and sort of various all the various horrible things happening yeah should we read a couple of them because they are really yeah, yeah. good and uh, it's probably my yeah. favorite part of the book um, mm-hmm. so on my copy it starts at two five six. Mm-hmm. So I'll read the first one, and then okay. hopefully by the point yeah. I've got to the end of it, you'll have found it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in her bed in Chelsea, the copywriter's wife, Clarice Banbury, woke with a shriek to see her husband rising from beneath the sheets of his own bed, lifting silently into the air. As the white shroud fell free, she saw in terror that his eyes were closed, that he was lying perfectly straight in sleep. Still shrieking, she saw the thing lurking in the shadows of the corner of the room, visible only in the murk of sleep-fogged eyes. Naked, twisted, an old, old crone, with her long straggly hair cloaking her bent body, she crouched on all fours with hooves for feet and a long tail twitching behind her. Klaus's heart had always been weak. It stopped altogether at the sight of the nightmare, taking her husband and she sighed and lay back in her bed as if returning to slumber. She did not see her husband continue his smooth rise to the ceiling, dreaming of flying, until he was swallowed by the shadows up there. She was spared the slow, steady droplets of blood that began to spatter the beds, drip, 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 painting the white sheets in shocked flowers of red. Uh, Yeah. Cool. I'll, I'll, I'll read another one. So good. Um, <laughs> Jim Lee Potter, master pickpocket at the age of 12, street urchin in the employ of Pete the Knife. He slept twitching in his cot in an empty warehouse, along with six other boys his age, who formed the rest of Pete's gang. It wasn't a bad life, stealing other people's purses, keeping a bit and giving the rest to old Pete, apart from the occupational hazard of being hung. It was really quite rewarding. It was of the hangman's noose that he dreamed now, a gallows standing alone on the Yorkshire moors, the rope swinging steadily. He often dreamed of the noose, but he never remembered, just as he would not remember this one, which was remarkable because of a new element in it. There was a small child standing by the gallows, a little girl wearing a black funeral dress and a black cloak with a hood set halfway back on her head. He could see she was entirely bald. Her eyes were downturned at first, but when they looked up at him, he could see that her irises were red as blood, and her face was as cold as the grave. He awoke as normal that morning, stretched and got up to have breakfast. It was only later that day that the crimson fever began to make itself felt. (laughs) And and the crimson fever is described horribly, like it kind of creates these rivulets in the flesh. Um, I think that's trench fever. Oh, oh. There's two, yeah. Trench fever does that, and that is 
Yeah, pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a nice place to live, uh, the London of... <laughs> I don't want to lies about Craig, to say the least. Absolutely, yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just read the last one. Um, okay. Franny Best, prostitute and mother, lived on the top floor of a two-storey house. It stood alone, a little island in the centre of a particularly tight muddle of back streets. The property was the result of a helping hand from an appreciative client, who was also a landlord and who lived on the bottom floor with his wife. He had made a fortune from unscrupulous dealings in the developing areas of London, fiddling property boundaries to make a profit. Downstairs, he was sleeping soundly. Upstairs, Franny did not know what to do. For twenty minutes now, she had been watching the witchkin circling her house, listening to the soft scrape of its feet, watching it lumber slowly and awkwardly along with the great glowing round stone held in its big hands. Three times now, it had stooped to put the stone down, each time at one of the corners of the house. Three times it had walked away and returned with a new stone. It was a tall, mournful, dreadful thing, known in witch law as a Deldergast. It took the shape of a narrow, lanky man in rags, his head bowed, his shoulders drawn as he carried his burden. Shuffling like a sleepwalker through the fog, it made a slow circuit of the house, and if Franny had counted, she would have noticed that it always made three circuits before dropping its stone. Now, as it approached the fourth corner on its third trip around, Franny panicked. She rushed into her two-year-old daughter's room, swept her up and ran. Down the stairs she went, her infant starting to squeal in her arms. Out of the door, her fear of the witchkin overwhelmed by her fear of staying in that house when the final stone was placed. The Dildegast placed its last stone on the final corner and vanished. A moment later, the house gave a groan and collapsed, burying the landlord and his wife, leaving only the stones, their glow dimming until they had faded to grey rock once more. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah, my whole... <laughs> this whole portion of... Uh of the book is just like underlines and like screaming in the margins uh, <laughs> <laughs> just like ah <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I, um, I made... there was a bit that actually made me like yelp out loud in fear oh um, what was that it's just uh, it's in the same bit it's just one just one line but uh, <laughs> children who had squalled in the night there was something under their beds were missing that morning and only little dolls of them were left on their pillows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's like something from an Edward Gorey, particularly unpleasant Edward Oh, Gorey yeah, it story. is. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. Um. <laughs> I think yeah. the bits I found most scary or, or dreadful, um, so I don't know if scary is quite the right... If I read this when I was young, I would have found it scary... <laughs> Whereas now reading it, it wasn't exactly scary. It was more just filled with dread and horror. Um, <laughs> yeah. But was um, the sequence with the wolf attack um, yeah. near the end in the tunnels uh, when the wolves mm-hmm. get set alight, which is just a yeah. horrible image and is described <laughs> very vividly in a way that made yeah. me feel a bit ill when I was, as I've been feeling 
you know, I've <laughs> been in the bathroom for most of the last two days. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> in, in a way, I felt like an advantage feeling quite unwell reading this book because there is a lot of physical suffering and Virginia Woolf in On Being Ill talks about how you can't have true <laughs> empathy for someone who is ill or, or physically unwell uh, unless yeah. you're undergoing that currently. That yeah, as soon as you're not, your mind sort of forgets what it's like. Yeah. So, since I really was feeling very wretched, uh, it was actually a weird advantage. That was the silver lining that reading the book, <laughs> shivering in bed, <laughs> I felt I could have you know a little bit more empathy for the horrible trials and tribulations of our characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other sequence, which I was the only point at which I almost put the book down for a little bit because I found it quite upsetting. Mm is um, when Elizabeth is captured by the fraternity and mm. is uh, suspended in a kind of cage. Um, and it's yeah. slowly almost, she describes, she feels like her skin is melting off her. Yeah, um, so we haven't quite described what's going on with that. Um, so the fraternity wanted to use Eliza because her parents were involved in the fraternity and then they took her sort of as a sacrifice. Her parents are described as being dissolute in the same way that Oscar Wilde describes Dorian Gray as being dissolute, that we don't actually have many specifics about what they're up to, but we're informed that it's really, really bad shit, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're they're really not... um... (laughs) <laughs> not upstanding members of society. Yeah, it said something like, I can't remember exactly the quote, but it's like, oh, some of which would make Stitch Face's stomach churn or something. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, all sorts. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the fraternity take Eliza Bell to be their sacrifice, um, which involves putting uh, this spirit inside her and it's the spirit of an old woman called Thatch who will, who is uh, instrumental to uh, sort of creating this apocalypse that, that Pike wants to bring forth. So, um, but sort of Eliza Bell has to be kind of slowly killed so that her, she has to be alive when the spirit's put in, but then the she has to be weakened so that the, the spirit will overtake her, her own. So she's kind of drugged and it's very, um, yeah, it's quite graphic and upsetting, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think it, he does a good job at um, getting across the horror of loss of agency, which, you know, is a real yeah. world horror. And, yeah, the horror of, I guess, don't want to quite say dysmorphia, but, you know, this feeling of disassociation and feeling that, her body's not her own and it's been taken over by something. It's described very vividly mm-hmm. in a way that's quite upsetting, I think. Mm. Um, actually, the sequence um, reminded me a lot of uh, in Legend of Korra. I don't know if you've seen that. No, but, um, no, th- this is clearly the podcast where we don't get each other. The podcast references. where we don't understand, yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, in um, it's the third, at the end of the third series, Korra is, um, is captured by the big villain of that series and who wants to kill her when she's in the avatar state i realize that none of this may, really makes much sense to you but um, <laughs> that's okay so 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 that the avatar is uh permanently killed and so he drugs and weakens her and um 
ties her up. And then anyway, it, and it's very it's very vivid and upsetting in a, in a similar way to um, the sequence of Eliza Bell in this book. Um, yeah. Where, where were we? <laughs> um, I don't know if there's so much more to say about it. I mean, I don't think it's a book of monumentally deep thematics particularly. I mean, I guess in terms of situating it in a cultural context, it's coming really towards the end of that 90s goth scene, I suppose. Mm. Um, Like, you know, obviously bands like The Cure have been around a little bit before then. You get that kind of industrial goth, like uh, Tear Garden or uh, Legendary Pink Dots, who I really like, um, who I guess take goth and then sort of make it even grimier, basically. <laughs> like that always seems to strike me as the difference between 80s and sort of later 90s goth. The, the mm-hmm. 90s goth is a bit more industrial, you know, and a bit more genuinely grubby mm-hmm. than the slightly more romantic 80s goth. So, you know, I do think Haunting of Elizabeth Cray would probably, and probably was the entry into goth culture for a lot of kids, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, really, I should have, I should have become a goth. Yeah, after I, I should have been a goth. I, 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 I've, <laughs> never, I've never had the, uh, the work ethic. I know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to commit. Yeah, it's, it's a um, shame because, you know, I often feel like I like quite a lot of sort of goth culture. Like, you know, my favourite role-playing experience since I've been playing Vampires the Masquerade, um, mm. And which is the most nineties goth game imaginable, frankly. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I like quite a lot of goth bands, um, but yeah, I guess I've never been been fully committed. And of course, oh, could I? You know, could I really wear a big top hat down the street? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I was a ghost tour guide briefly, so I, I did it. There. <laughs> That's pretty, it's pretty goth. Yeah. Um, yeah, you did literally wear a big top hat. <laughs> Down the street. Yeah, and, uh, the streets of the streets of York, which I think is a particularly kind of golf city in its way, you know? Yeah. I mean it's touristy, but if you're walking around at yeah. night with all its snickle ways and cobblestones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um that there are a couple more things I wanted to talk about. Okay. Uh one of which is Kathleen, who I love. Oh yeah, um, yeah, she's a really great character. Um she's um She's like Thaniel's mentor. Um, so she's so Thaniel's like seventeen and Kathleen is in her late twenties. Um and there there aren't many witch hunters. Like like you um, whose birthday it is today, which like, like me whose twenty ninth birthday it is right now. So um, that means it's now <laughs> time for you to grow up and become a witch hunter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, I definitely read Kathleen as queer. Um, which is my right, as it's my birthday. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because uh, she's um, she's basically she she has like shorter hair and she wears trousers and it's very daring and she's a witch hunter, which is a very like you know not a very feminine occupation, and she's uh, independent and so on. So so I've uh, I've taken her and decided that she is. Uh, I, I think I think that character. I think that's all well and fair. It, it's, it's time it's time for you to start writing the fanfic. 
Yeah. Um, and I thought she actually had quite a... Um, it was quite a touching scene with her and with the woman who is uh, Leanna Butcher, who is the fraternity's last victim. Um, so when Leanna Butcher dies, the um, the the Chak Morgue will be completed and the, the gods will be called forth and so on. Um, and Nathaniel tries to come to her aid to to um to stop this from happening but they um and she doesn't die immediately but they can't save her ultimately and so there's a little while where it's only sort of her hanging on to life that that stops the impending darkness from coming and um Kathleen's the only person who sort of who sits with her and thinks about her life and her humanity um and uh and she thinks um if she if she never awoke, uh, if she kept on breathing but never awoke, uh, why that would be just perfect for them? They don't really see her as a as a person, and I, I don't know. I really like that scene, and I like like Kathleen like sort of thinking about this ordinary woman and her life, and yeah, I thought it was a good moment. Yeah, no, I, I think it's those moments of empathy with characters who in other books would be treated in a more disposable way. Which is what elevates mm. um, the haunting of Eliza Bell Cray over what it could have been. Yeah. The, 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 you know, even though it does deal with slightly dodgy Jack the Ripper aesthetics <laughs> and such, mm-hmm. um, I think it's because of those moments that actually doesn't feel nearly as problematic as one might imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing um, is the ending... So, like, going full spoiler, this book did come out in 2001. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Um, So, during the book, um, Eliza Bell is uh, periodically asking about the witchkin, uh, sort of what they are and where they came from, and sort of people don't really want to talk about it too much. Um, And then, in the end, there's this kind of big sort of villainous reveal where Pike does his big villain speech <laughs> and um and he uh he says that the the witchkin were created by humans. Um so it's like he says, We take all our sordid guilt, all our hate, all our shame, everything we dislike about ourselves, and we fashion ghosts to haunt us and monsters to plague us, and we don't even know we're doing it. So the idea is that humanity has entered uh the age of reason and is kind of having a collective mental breakdown at the idea that there is no one to blame for our misery and suffering but ourselves um so uh, it says um in the deep parts where science cannot reach we are afraid of the emptiness we are making for ourselves the self-destruction we started so we made the witchkin woke some ancient part of our minds that we did not know we had and fashion creatures out of our own nightmares to terrorise us. Because all this hate and guilt and shame has to go somewhere, Daniel, or it would eat us alive, keep it in, and we'd all be like Stitch Face. Um, so it's kind of a, a fairly frightening twist, because um, right? we, we think we can protect ourselves from the fairy tale monsters through reason and logic, but actually it's because, it's because we... Um, because we're too invested in those things that, that we've created these monsters. Which, I guess, this book 
being set on just before the kind of eve of the two world wars themat- thematically mm-hmm. makes sense right that mm-hmm. you have this moment of 20th century history in which I mean obviously of Nazism it's tricky because you've got this kind of weird pseudo bollocks pseudo spiritual stuff in there but mm-hmm. you know um you definitely would suddenly get this kind of mechanization of, of absolute cruelty and evil right that mm. so so yeah um it, yeah and it's kind of it's kind of transposing that to this uh the precipitating event is the imagined bombing of of britain uh yeah, yeah, which seems like a kind of World War One kind of image somehow with these zeppelins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. And Pike's solution to this is to um, is to just scrap it, to just uh, destroy the world, and like bring back these these old and hungry gods, and they'll they'll form some sort of new world order. Um, but I think the uh, I think the the book somewhat suggests <laughs> that the uh, the solution is more um, to do with making society more equal and less oppressive and less full of misery and poverty and the sort of real world horror that kind of feeds the supernatural horror rather than just scrapping it all. Yeah. Um... In that way, it's got very similar <laughs> thematics to the second Amnesia game, Amnesia and Machine for Pigs, but I don't know if you've played that. I mean, I'm just going to pretend that I have. Oh, now, yeah, so, so that, um, you, you, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, so on that reference that we both got, um, <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's maybe... Um... Keep it referential, spooky kids. <laughs> oh, God, I've played Nathan Barley. Like, you've seen Nathan Barley, haven't have I, Did I ever make you see Nathan Barley? <laughs> I have seen okay. Nathan Barley, yes. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> right, on with the credits. Um, <laughs> so our theme music is by Maki Yamazaki. Uh Outro music is by Joe Kelly and uh, artwork is by Letty Wilson and I will put all their details in the show notes and you really should have a look at their stuff because they're all very cool people and good artists. Far cooler than us. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, they would get all the references, every (laughs) single one. (laughs) Um, Um, Okay, and if you feel so inclined and you've enjoyed this podcast, please do go onto iTunes and leave us a kind review. Thank you. Uh, cool. Um, so, I mean, you, you kind of did a sign-off, but uh, do you um, do you have a... Not really. I'm off to Unitarian meeting now uh, to make sure that, you know, I find a way of navigating myself in this godless society. <laughs> cool. Um, all right. Good luck. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>